Welcome to the Three Wins Podcast, brought to you by Legacy Advisory Partners, an Atlanta-based financial services firm that believes that the key to unlocking your company's full growth potential can be found in the Three Wins Framework. My name's Sean Lydon, and I'm the producer of the Three Wins Podcast. If you're a business owner or senior executive who is serious about growth and making your company as valuable as possible, you've come to the right place. And we have an amazing episode for you today where Russ Clemmer, the president at Legacy Advisory Partners, joins Mark Walker and Matt Joins on Legacy's senior investment team. And this episode features a special guest, Michael Cole, senior investment consultant with Clark Capital. Michael and the team talk about the different types of corporate investment tools available to help you manage your company's cash most effectively. After all, not every company is having a cash crisis right now. And depending on your business, you may have some cash just sitting in the checking account, not working for you. If that's your case, what are some investment vehicles to consider to put that money to work while keeping your risk tolerance and liquidity requirements in mind? What are the pros and cons of each option? And how do you determine which investment vehicles are best for your situation? We'll deep dive into these topics and more on today's episode of the Three Wins Podcast. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much, Russ. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, Michael, we know all about you, but tell our, tell our viewers a little bit about you, about yourself yeah. and Clark Capital. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, my, my job is I'm an investment consultant, uh, which basically means I partner with elite financial advisors uh, across our country and their clients. Uh, I'm a liaison for Clark Capital. Clark Capital is a company that builds customized stock and bond portfolios for higher net worth individuals and corporations. Uh, my role is to really get involved, get to know the financial advisor, get to know the client, kind of in between the company and the actual client and financial advisor. Knowing Clark as well as I do and, and having the background of 20 years in investments, my role is to essentially help create the right portfolio and match the portfolio that Clark ends up building for the particular need. Uh, Clark is a company, uh, you know, just to expand on that briefly. Uh, the company's name officially is Clark Capital. We're based in Philadelphia. Uh, we're all working from home these days, but generally are at the top of a very tall building in downtown Philadelphia. We manage uh, $20, $21 billion. Uh, we were started by an engineer, quit his job, and chased a dream of being a stockbroker. And you know, it's still a family business today. Uh, actually, all the employees own a part of the business, including myself, a very small one, but kind of helps us all, you know, care about the outcomes and work hard and be invested in, in success. Um, you know, we're proud that we managed $20, $21 billion and uh, about split half between stocks and bonds. I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that you know, we're going to talk about today is, is bonds, because for cash, you know, bonds can be a good solution. Many investment firms you know, don't focus so much on the bonds. So while we're good at stocks and a lot of other firms are good at stocks, I do think the bond piece is something that often gets ignored by the investment uh, you know, community. So that, that, spe- that specialty or expertise in bonds is something I do find in this low interest rate environment we're talking a lot about. Um, so I've been here four years, best job I've ever had, wonderful group of people. And uh, you know, that's my role. 
Great, great. Well, we appreciate you being on the podcast with us today. And I really, one thing I want to point out that you said I want to emphasize is that you partner with elite advisors across the country. And we really appreciate you categorizing us like that. That's a big compliment. And uh, we'll, we'll settle up later on that description. Appreciate that a bunch. Great. We're, we're, we, uh, we admire what uh, Clark uh, does and the approach that Clark takes uh, in, in offering uh, not only the, like you said, the equities and the things that are, you know, kind of, you know, uh, popular and people are really, really interested at, but also really on the blocking and tackling side, the, the, the sound core basics on the bond side, being able to say, this has got to be a part of the approach and the consideration. And we will dive deep into that. So, but the big question today is, and we talked about it a little bit on the last podcast, which was just Mark and Matt and me, we talked about this idea of excess cash, right? Cash is only one component of your overall corporate asset management. What are the things on the equity side of your balance sheet in your company? But we want to ask this question and consider this right now that, you know, even though there's a lot of, you know, uh, folks who are struggling out there from the shutdowns and the economy and different changes, there are a lot of companies out there that are doing well. And, you know, they, they've either been in the right spot at the right time or, or you know, they're, they're neutral to the swings of the economy um, in some degree or another. And they, they may have this excess cash position. So we, what we want to talk about today is, do you have a corporate asset management process in place? What are some of those components? But then when you, when you have identified right? How much cash I actually have in a short-term and a long-term position. What's the best, how do I even think about put my cash to work in a long-term position? What does that look like? What are the things I need to think through? What are the, if I'm an owner of a business or I'm on a executive leadership team from CFO perspective, especially what are the things I need to think through if we haven't either been in a position to think about cash in the past because we're growing fast or, you know, we've always just considered all of our cash in a, a short term or we've always distributed, you know, all of our excess cash for whatever reason. We need to start putting some money in or we need to grow our bonding program <clears throat> if we're in construction. So a lot of different things you could think about. But so what is excess cash mean? What, in, in your experience in, in you know, working with, what does excess cash mean? How do you end up defining that term? You know, excess cash is, it's certainly a moving target, but I can tell you that for the folks that we work with, it's money that on a rolling basis, they've just noticed over a period of years that they're not using, right? You know, we work with businesses that, you know, obviously some businesses, you know, need a huge cash cushion because their cash flows and billables and receivables, you know, really, you know, swing wildly. In other cases, you know, they don't swing wildly. But what we notice is certain businesses perennially will have just a block of money. And if that block of money is growing, and you've kind of done your worst case scenario planning, and you still have a block of money, and you might have a little bit of a, you know, kind of inkling in the back of your brain, knowing that having that much money at, you know, XYZ Bank is really just doing them a favor and not you the favor, you know, that's where we can come in and help, you know, and, and it just let me, maybe this is an overshare moment, but, you know, I'm a big fan of cash myself, just as a 
just as a person. I'm not running a business, but I am running a household. Yeah. And cash helps me sleep well at night. So mm-hmm. when we're consulting, we never recommend people take all their cash and get rid of it and put it into an investment, even if that investment is liquid and available and you know conservative or low risk. Um, we have to have that sleep at night factor. And generally speaking, yeah. you know, in my world, you know, I, I like six to 12 months worth of liquidity, you know, just yeah. in a pretty conservative position. Now, y'all are financial advisors. I'm really just a helper in my normal day-to-day job. So I kind of fit under the financial advisor's opinion on that. But in my personal life, like I like to know that I've got six to 12 months. We're working with a case in uh, the upstate of South Carolina right now where they're even more conservative than me and how I run my household. They want to have enough money that they can pay executive salaries on into the future if the company falls on hard times. Now, that's a relatively extreme position, and there are many reasons not to hold assets like that in the corporation. But at the end of the day, that's what they want. They want to have, in this case, about $10 million uh, you know, set aside. Realistically, they're probably only going to need a million or two of that on an ongoing basis you know, for cash flow purposes and business operations. But the excess seven or eight million is there for peace of mind, knowing that they could have, you know, a horrible, you know, business, uh, you know, you know, challenge that would still allow them to not change their lifestyle and be able to pay corporate executive salaries. So it's probably, Russ, that's the hardest single question that you could ask is what's the right amount. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, we're generally in the camp of like more cash is good, but too much cash is just plain too much. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you think about the... Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, you think about it. It is pretty similar to on the personal side of you know what what's your discretionary income, so the money that's left over at the end of the month. And and the important piece on a personal side is that once you've identified that, make sure you're harnessing it and pointing it in a, a direction, you know, to invest those dollars. So same thing on a business. You know, you want to look at. Uh, we're talking with a business now that you know we're discussing having 12 months of kind of operating capital set aside. Anything north of that really should be invested. So having those dollars, you know, work harder for you because right now, you know, with the current pandemic, the Federal Reserve's you know dropped interest rates to virtually zero. So your money market and savings accounts, you're basically paying you nothing. So these are more longer term dollars, you know, even if it's a three to five year period, you know, you really should be looking at opportunities to to make your your corporate cash work harder for you. Yeah. So in both of those examples y'all mentioned, I think the key word is custom. So we go back to corporate asset management. There's not a there's not a, you know, uh, IRS rule or, or anything like that, where you just sit there and, and someone says, no, this is how you have to manage your corporate assets, right? There are rules as far as taxes go. There are rules as far as appropriateness goes and accounting goes, right? But when you sit there and say, this is excess cash, we've paid the taxes on it. We're looking at all of our different assets, the personalities of the leadership and the needs of the type of business, the industry that the business in, the age of the business, all of those go into the customization process. And both of those examples express a custom group of leaders and and their individual approaches and their risk tolerance and all the different things that go into how much uh, cash do we need on hand? What is excess cash and how do we put it on hand? And so uh, 
it, tell us a little bit about uh, what we, you know, that we talk, talk about investment policy statements um, and, and it's a set of guidelines, but tell us about how those, you know, kind of come into play and why they're useful uh, and, and why somebody should kind of, that's kind of the starting point of how they filter their definition of some of these things. Yeah, you know, what we find is it is helpful for businesses and financial advisors to just put pen to paper and come up with a set of priorities and goals for a group of assets. An investment policy statement is nothing more than that. Uh, it's a document that sets out kind of the goals, the objectives, uh, the asset class ranges that, you know, a particular investment is supposed to, you know, adhere to. And by sitting down and doing that, you know, I think we're all, you know, we're human creatures, right? Our memories are fallible and, you know, things change and we get emotional, right? It's important to some, sometimes just kind of sit down on paper, put down what our priorities are at a given moment in time and kind of box in a particular asset, uh, you know, and the goals for that asset so that we all, so everybody, and even if, you know, let's say, God forbid something happens, you know, the other folks that are now, you know, responsible for following and being stewards of those assets understand the priority. It's almost like a manual for the actual assets yeah. and the investments uh, that, 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 it, that it's referring to. Yeah, it's good. I had a friend in, uh, that I uh, used to talk about, hey, you want to make plans for, you know, Friday night, you know, we'll see what's, and he'd always say, yeah, that, that sounds good. Whatever I, you know, somebody come up with, suggest, yeah, that sounds good. Lord willing, right? Lord willing. And he would always kind of take that approach. And what that translated was, was, well, we'll see when the, when the time comes, we'll see if I either still feel like it or, you know, honestly plans, you know, circumstances change, we can't make it or, you know, it was always that. And so <laughs> a lot of companies, sometimes they don't want, if they have that, you know, an investment policy statement in place, they may feel like it's a little bit constricting. Like, well, you know, I've got to follow this thing instead of like, well, we'll see when we get there. And most of the time, poor decisions are made when you don't have that framework in place. You end up saying, well, we'll get there and we don't, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of see what happens. And similar to forecasts and budgets, if you have that IPS in place, you have something, a, a, a benchmark in a set of standards, self-imposed standards. So it doesn't mean you can't change them at some point, but at least you have this set of standards and you've thought through it for the health of the company and the health of the longevity of, of that. And so it, that's kind of the starting point. We like to talk about that as a starting point. Um, but underneath that, you know, the, the building this customized approach, there's four things. And I'd like, you know, just the three of y'all to talk through these four things. Um, but the, the asset allocation, right? So it's what are you investing in? The mixture of those different things. Portfolio design, right? Which also leads to the, the, the rhyme and the reason, right? What are we actually trying to accomplish? Not just put money in different places because, you know, the, the, the name of the equity or the bond sounds uh, fun, right? Uh, and then risk control, which is something I think a lot of people don't pay as much attention to. They're not, it's like taking a personality test. You know, you're always, what do I, what do I want? I want to be aggressive because that sounds fun, right? I want to have this, you know, I want to answer the questions in a, in a slanted way. And then tax management, right? And, and people making sure that they're paying attention to taxes. So let's start with asset allocation. Just kind of walk us through the, the you know, the, the 411 of asset allocation and why that's important. 
Who wants to take that one? You want me to take that one? Jump sure. in. Yeah, you go go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, asset allocation, no matter who you ever work with, any, you know, it, it is the absolute most important decision you're ever going to make. Not what manager you work with, not what financial advisor, you know, you hire, not, you know, really, you know, what fund or what investment you pick. Asset allocation is how you allocate the different types of investments. Those types of investments are cash, you know, CDs, bonds, stocks, real estate, the types of investment philosophy it is, you know, small cap, large cap, mid cap, tactical, strategic, you know, investments are more complicated than cars. And think of all the different types of cars, think of all the different categories, think of all the brands, think of all the sub models, uh, you know, and if you throw in anything else like lawnmowers and, you know, motorcycles and helicopters, I mean, you can get pretty, pretty complicated with transportation. Investment is pretty similar where there's lots of different types. Asset allocation is the number, you know, there have been Nobel Prizes won over this, determining your asset allocate, or actually the difference between portfolio behavior is over 90% attributable to the asset allocation, meaning your asset allocation is going to determine more of how the investments behave than any other single thing. So we're talking about it first because it is always the most important thing. Matt yeah. Martin, provide yeah, some. Yeah, sure. Just to add to that is, you know, the it's important. So you really want to factor in time horizon. So the shorter the the period of time, you know, the more you want to have in fixed income, which are going to be conservative investments, versus equities, which are going to be you know more risk, more reward. So factoring in, you know, how you de- determine your asset allocation strategy is kind of goes into the next one of portfolio design of, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? What is the time horizon that we're working with? And how do we uh, basically develop that strategy of, you know, what's the right mixture between those two of, of fixed income and equities? So once you know the time horizon, you know, and what you're trying to accomplish, then you can c- come up with the appropriate mix, you know, and you make some slight modifications over time. If things change or, or adjust to your objectives, then you would modify, of course, your, your allocation strategy. So really the investment strategies, kind of your blueprints or kind of the, the planning that you've done ahead of time, asset allocation would be more along the lines of deciding which tools are going to be used for which parts of the job that you have to do. And then uh, stock selection and um, asset. Uh, in The individual security selection is going to be more like the, the brand name that you would do. You know, if you, you trust a brand name, maybe it's more heavy duty and it's, it's up for the task. Or maybe it's a cheaper model because you don't need to, you know, get it that rigorous, use it that rigorously. So you can kind of differentiate in, in that way. That's the way I, I think about it. Good. Okay. So let's move on to portfolio design. So let, walk us walk us through the basics of that and some, some things to make sure we pay attention to there. Yeah, this is, I'll take this one. This is where really, you know, science comes in. When you talk about investing, one of my kind of pet peeves about the investment industry is you, you listen to a discussion like this and it just sounds nebulous and, and understand like, we're not trying to be nebulous. It's just investments are hard to describe. 
Um, you know, if you can put some actual like numerical parameters on it, you know, you think about, I apologize for using all these car analogies, but I'm kind of a car guy. You think about torque and horsepower and rear wheel drive and front wheel drive and zero to 60 and, you know, G forces and manual versus, you know, automatic transmissions, right? Those are kind of terms and numerical, you know, guidelines that we all kind of have a common understanding of. Well, we have that in, you know, investments as well. So when we're designing a portfolio, it's that's our expertise. Our expertise is that we know those behavior characteristics of the different types of investments. You know, just to use an example, bonds are generally, at least our bonds are about five times less volatile than stocks. So if a client is talking to us about a two to three year time horizon, we're not really going to be entertaining stocks because while stocks actually have a better chance of beating inflation and have a much higher long-term rate of return over the short term, they're just simply inappropriate because even though they may be better for the long term, in the short term, they may you know, have a, a, a poor performance period and you might hop into them when their volatility is working against your particular time horizon. So our expertise in portfolio design is trying to help match the exact asset class to the time horizon and the risk profile of the particular need. Um, going back to that you know, example I mentioned earlier, you know, those clients that were trying to build up $10 million in the corporate account to be able to pay executive salaries, you know, candidly, in that case, we have now, I just checked that account out, it's $350,000 in stocks. And that was a direct result of the client approaching us in March and saying, hey, is this a buying opportunity we might want to buy in? Other than the extreme market correction, you know, stocks are not really on the table for folks like that. But now that they've built up about six or seven million dollars in that account, putting three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in stocks at a market low, you know, with a little bit of an eye opening that hey, maybe we know this thing might not go well, but we might get lucky with our timing. Let's go for it. Everybody's eyes were open on the three fifty. But the core of the six or seven million is in low volatility investment grade, you know, actual fixed income bond contracts. Uh, the liquidity there is, is pretty high. The risk there is pretty low. Contracts there are, are guaranteed. So when we're looking at portfolio design, we're kind of using just like the car industry, the parameters and the risk metrics and the downside and the upside and the targeted rate of return. And we're looking, so we, we have all that in our head. Then we look at the client. And we try to best fit those together, not any different than an auto mechanic recommending tires or, you know, synthetic oil versus, you know, regular oil. It's complicated, but it's really not that complicated once you understand how investments work and the client's need. Yeah. So j- just about cars for a second, like, you know, is that a DeLorean on the shelf behind you? <laughs> I actually have a DeLorean, but thank you for noticing. I'm a bit of a car guy. That yeah. is uh, a Mazda RX-7, not truly oh. a car that's a sports car, but it's a Mazda RX-7, which was what a lower middle class poor guy from uh, the Northeast could afford. <laughs> and my family remembered that that was my high, school, uh, my high school sports car. So I have a little model of it that I made. Thank you for asking. Yeah, the rotary nice. engine, it's big technology. Right. That's right. It's a great yeah. car for snow, I find. I'm kidding. It's a terrible car for the snow, but made a high school guy happy. Yeah. Very cool. <clears throat> so I think that's, that's good. Now, this is the, the, the part that I think, you know, just in, in what I've heard and seen, the risk is always, you know, something that you kind of have to make sure you, you maybe talk about twice 
just making sure everybody kind of has that moment of expressing themselves, whether it's the leaders of the corporation or if you're talking to an individual, making sure that they understand, you know, what that whole conversation is about, not just well, you know, I want to be safe and I don't want to lose the money or I want to do this and this and this, right? So making sure they understand all the different aspects of risk, including their personal approach to risk is important. Somebody walk us through that. Mark, Matt. So I guess the biggest, from the conversations we've had, especially recently, um, you know, it's generally, especially when we use the term cash management, uh, you're going to be talking about shorter term kind of less risky because you're trying to get people to rethink their idea of just sitting on too much cash. So if, if you're trying to kind of build out that portfolio, you don't want to just jump into, you know, a pretty risky uh, profile. That's likely not going to be the, the right strategy. So, you know, peeling back the onion, really kind of going into and digging deeper into uh, what their, cash inflows are, kind of what their daily or monthly expenses are going to look like, annual expenses, building it that way and just kind of building upwards, seeing what benefits they have that are going to be payable, what's their fixed expenses versus their variable expenses, and really building in an appropriate amount of uh, cash range. Michael said earlier that it's a moving target, and it always is, and that's something that uh, is very important knowing just how much of that portfolio we want to give it time to work, but how much of that portfolio potentially could we need to access uh, if things don't really go as planned? Cause they never, they never do. Uh, the plan is really uh, the best guess that we have, but we know that that never works out and you always want to have those contingencies uh, to have the safety and the liquidity that you need so you're not at a, a loss if you happen to need that money at, at the wrong market time. Yeah, just to yeah. add to that, I think that investors in general, they're willing to take a risk when their investments are, are gaining and uh, going up in value. You know, you really see how comfortable people are when you have times of stress financial stress or market stress, how do they respond? You know, what's their uh, emotional reaction? What's, you know, are, they, are they wanting to liquidate? Are they, they wanting to vary you know, off what they have identified in their IPS? So you know, the biggest thing we can help corporate clients, individual clients with is stay the course to what you want, you know, your objectives are, you know, let the investments do um, what you've planned for them to do. You can make slight modifications, but we want to avoid any rash decisions and, you know, trying to time the market, you know, in and out. Uh, you can be strategic and tactical, but, um, you know, the, you look at, I'm sure most people have seen the charts that look, shows the S&P 500 over a long period of time and what the average, you know, investor's rate of return is, you know, the average investor rate of return is typically, you know, 300 basis points less than the S&P 500. So that's a big variance of, you know, why is it so much less? And it's, you know, the people who make the wrong decisions at the wrong time. 
so not all investments are are equal in in risk, and that's a big component you know, with working with a, a company like Clark of looking at what type of investments they're buying and and holding in the accounts, understanding the risk associated, making sure it's appropriate, you know, moving in and out, you know, when it's uh, the timing is right. And, you know, you think about this year, you know, with the the pandemic of getting out of some, some sectors that were, they're not going to perform well in a period of shutdown. So maybe, you know, pulling out of, restaurants and travel and um, hotels and airlines, you know, those kind of items are, are part of kind of risk management, risk controls. Yeah. And that's where the, the emotional, I like what you said there, Mark, about the emotional side, the, the uh, distress. And there's always going to be something happen that happens that you don't necessarily expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, a couple couple episodes ago, we, we talked about forecasting. And so it just says it is it, important to forecast and think through all right, what would happen if, you know, we, we gain these four, you know, new prospects and turn them into clients. So we lose these two clients or, you know, this happens in the economy or this happens in the market, this happens in the industry. Uh, it, you know, it, you forecast those things and look at them the same way as the, the stress test a certain set of assumptions that you are putting into an investment policy statement to say, well, what if this actually happened? Let's, let's try to answer honestly and say, you know, we'd be upside down or we'd be, you know, if the, if the, you know, kind of Creek don't rise kind of, you know, the, that's the, that's the kind of comment I grew up with. If the Creek, if the Creek don't rise, we'll be okay. Well, what if the Creek rises? You know, how do you plan? How do you how do you define those boundaries, right? Those, those set of possibilities, and come up with a consensus of how to move forward within those. But being able to 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 look at that those risk parameters and trust that there's a control process in place to monitor those things and manage those things. That's a big component of this that I think is really important. All right, so tax management. So this is, you know, this is probably the the, the one that I would say uh, is uh, as important, uh, you know, on the other side of, you know, you you've got these gains you're trying to make, right? You're trying to you're trying to earn. You're trying to do this. You're trying to put things at work. But if you can manage and and save on taxes or manage or or manage your tax liability effectively, then that's in my opinion, in the way I look at things, that could be just as important in many ways as just looking at the market, right? Just looking at what the market's doing. Making sure that this, this component isn't lost is something I think uh, is, is very uh, effective and helpful and something that's often overlooked. So walk us through, Michael, y'all's approach to taxes, fundamental approach to taxes, but things that y'all you know are, are able to to help with on that tax side and why that's important. Yeah. I mean, obviously taxes are the elephant in every room. No one love I shouldn't say no one, but very few people just love paying taxes. I mean, I think all of us understand it's necessary on some level, but it's just not fun. Uh, in America, we pay those taxes and your corporation, you know, you're, you're really stroking those checks. So, you know, it's important to try to keep more. And, you know, I don't remember what great, you know, American leader said, but no one has to pay more taxes than they legally owe. 
And um, the ways to try to, you know, minimize taxes in your investments has to do with, you know, age old, uh, you know, non-controversial processes like if it's an equity account, tax loss harvesting, leveraging losses against gains. Uh, uh, additionally, on the stock side, it would have to do with buying individual equities themselves, not mutual funds. When you buy an exchange-traded fund with an F or a mutual fund with an F, you're joining something that already exists. That, that thing that already exists has some gains probably, not always, maybe not at a market bottom or a brand new fund, but very likely if that fund's been around a little while, especially during a bull market, there's likely a profit inside of that fund that you are now joining. So if it's an equity fund or a bond fund and you're joining that fund and there's a profit from earnings and growth prior to you joining, you will likely have to pay taxes on that, you know, come tax time. You can avoid that by getting your own portfolio. And by getting your own portfolio, I mean your own stocks, right? You can tax loss harvest stocks. It's very difficult to tax loss harvest, near impossible to tax loss harvest mutual funds or exchange traded funds. Um, when it comes to bonds, the main trick or trick is the wrong word, but, you know, the main skill that we have would be to head towards, you know, municipal bonds. Municipal bonds are generally speaking federally tax free and likely state tax free in the state that you reside. And by doing that, you know, you may obviously have to pay a little more for them because they're in more demand. Generally, the municipalities don't offer as high of interest rates because they're aware of their kind of special tax treatment. So they don't they don't have the competitive pressures like corporations do to pay those higher rates. So you have a higher price, you have a lower yield, but if you're in a particular tax bracket, say 30%, you have to gross up that net yield that you're receiving, the cash flow from the bonds, uh, and, and really do the math. What we've found for most of our corporations and individuals is that if, you're, if the last dollar that's coming into your company or to your household on the individual side is, is 70% or less yours, meaning your tax bracket is 30% or higher, you know, really looking at your tax structure and maybe using municipal bonds and, you know, really getting aggressive with your tax loss harvesting makes a lot of sense. Um, if you're in, you know, one of those fortunate companies that, you know, is able to, you know, claim a lot of depreciation or, you know, have a lot of expenses or, you know, capital expenditures in a given year, so you don't have a super high tax burden, um, you know, then frankly, you know, corporate bonds or, you know, tax efficiency is going to be less important to you. But just know that, you know, there are options out there, namely individual equities, tax loss harvesting, avoiding embedded gains on the stock side. And on the bond side would be municipal bonds, which are federally, likely federally and likely state tax free, uh, you know, depending on your corporate structure. Yeah, I want to pause just for a second here and highlight one really important thing. So any corporation, you know, small business owner, um, corporate, corporate, uh, large corporation, anybody that's considering this type of move, it's very important to have a uh, team of folks around you that understand the implications. And so uh, it, just like advisors, just like you know, anybody else out there in any profession, not, ever, not all folks who work in that profession are created equal. And so when you're working with a CPA, it's very important, it's very important to have someone who can walk down this road and whatever strategy is employed can, uh, can, can see it for what it is and understand it 
and track with that. It's very important to have somebody in place that can can go with that and understand it and make sure and weigh in on what the company is is trying to accomplish in that whole process. And so just a little bit of encouragement for owners uh, and for, uh, you know, larger companies that, that have a, a team of professional leaders in these different important uh, positions inside the company. It's good to have folks surrounding you that can say, this is, we, we, they can see the, the goals of the company. They can see what the company's trying to accomplish. They can see the definitions around excess cash, long-term, short-term needs and everything else. And they can say, this makes sense. And this is, this is what's uh, appropriate for the company. But if you don't have that, that person in that tax role to be able to look at the importance of this particular topic that we're talking about, the tax management perspective, then there's, there's going to be confusion and there's going to be a, a, a misapplication here. And I think that's an important, just to pause. And, and so there, there's rounding out the team is very important to make sure that that's uh, being taken under consideration and, and uh, the best for the company is, is, is being provided. One, one little uh, one little uh, sidebar there, but I think that's that's exactly right. Mark, Matt, anything else on the on the tax perspective? No, I think we covered it pretty well. Don't pay more yeah. than you have to. I'm about to say, let's go back over the, let's go back over the key points. Don't pay more than you have to. Right. And don't don't cheat. Right. But don't also be afraid. Right. Because if you're paying taxes, that means you're making money. Right. Yep. So that's that's kind of you, you, you want your portfolio to have some sort of tax uh, obligation because that means you've you've made some money. Good. OK, so um, it, we've talked a little bit about the, the bonds and, and, you know, looking at, you know, different things. So let's talk for a moment about today's environment. Right. Let's bring it down to a practical situation. Today's environment, what the market looks like, what the economy looks like uh, in in. in what uh, uses or, you know, how, how you could potentially employ some excess cash within the specifics of today's market uh, and economy. And again, there, there's nobody on earth that uh, should be saying we know what's going to happen tomorrow definitively, but we take what we know and be able to talk through it. Let's talk through at a high level, some uh, options and some consideration you know, for what people, you know, could be able to, you know, could be looking at here in this kind of situation. What are bonds, uh, what, what are bonds doing right now? What are the equities doing right now? And yesterday was a, what was the drop in the, the uh, S&P, Matt? Was it 700, 500, 700 points, something like that? Yeah, I didn't see how it wraps up, but it was a pretty wild yeah. day. But we've, yeah, had a, we've had a good run, so it makes We've sense. had a good run. But overall, what's going on today, and this is everybody jumping in, what's going on today and what are some considerations uh, among these different types of uh, investment vehicles to consider? Yeah, Russ, let me jump in here. So, you know, this is a challenging environment, right? You know, there's a lot of challenges. COVID is a challenge, right? And COVID has inspired, and we think accurately so, the Fed to have a very accommodative, dovish monetary policy. What does that mean? That means they're dropping rates. They're pumping money in the system. They're trying to put confidence out there. What's the consequence of that? The consequence of that is you can't go to the bank and make much money these days. Um, those with money are making less because we're trying to tax money less. That's what interest is, right? And interest is interest charges is like a tax to a borrower, right? If you're one of the fortunate few with capital, 
the negative implications of that accommodative monetary policy for you is you don't have a lot of great interest rate options. So there are options, just not as many great ones, right, in a low interest rate environment. Now, before I move on to the, what those options are and what do you do, I, I want to give you some historical perspective. Now, as you mentioned, our crystal ball is foggy at Clark, just like everyone's, right? We don't know exactly what's going to happen. But, you know, there are reasonable educated guesses and prognostications you can make. For example, in 2008, the great credit crisis where, you know, real estate bubble popped and had, you know, mass unemployment and in a terrible economic, you know, situation, you know, overtaking the world. The Fed was very accommodative for a very long period of time. We kept talking about raising rates. It didn't really happen, but it eventually did start to happen as the Fed raised rates nine times, ending, obviously, with the rate cuts that they've made during COVID. But those nine rate increases were the first increases that we experienced for a long time. I believe there was about seven years where rates stayed, eight years where rates stayed extremely low. The Fed today is saying, we're not thinking about thinking about thinking about, and that is a quote. Uh, they, they, they get a little exasperated when they get the question. So they're really trying to reinforce that they're not thinking about raising rates anytime soon. So I think we all have to kind of accept there, there could be some incorrections. Yeah, pardon me. There could be some risk in this, but I do think it's a pretty strong likelihood that interest rates will stay low for a while. And if that's the case, cash isn't going to pay you much at the bank. CDs, probably not going to pay you much at the bank. There's a whole you know, rush of refinancing because money is available in the, um, less expensively in the mortgage market. It's fueling not just the demand of, of bigger houses these days for people moving from cities, but also refinancing is coming from you know, just the fact that rates are lower. So what do you do, right? In this environment, you've got cash, you've got CDs, they're not paying much. You've got bonds, but if rates rise, there's a little bit of a headwind to bonds, so you have to proceed with caution. You've got stocks up until yesterday. You know, yesterday was down 3.5%, but we were at you know, actually all-time highs on some indexes. So it's, a, it's a definitely a proceed with caution equity, and equity investment time. Real estate, huge demand, low interest rates. You know, real estate is an interest rate sensitive, you know, vehicle, meaning, you know, you got to be cautious when you're looking at a potential rise of interest rates. I'll be honest, like it's not an easy time to figure out what to do with capital. Our expertise at Clark in, in one area where we found a lot of success lately is with folks that are thinking about, you know, maybe having some cash, but recognizing they're not making uh, much, much rate of return on that. So I think our bond team, buying a good, solid investment grade corporate or municipal bond portfolio with yields in the 3 to 6% range, call it about 4 if you need an average, uh, you know, with a targeted rate of return in that realm, right, and a historical rate of return in that realm. There are risks, and I'd like to cover that because I want to make sure we're, you know, full disclosure here that, you know, when we say 3 to 4 in a low interest rate environment, it gets people's attention. It's yeah. not as safe as cash or CDs. But it is still considered by the lawyers, you know, we refer to it on paper as conservative. It is a risk profile one out of six. And, you know, that is something that a lot of business owners for the right amount of capital, not all of their capital, but a portion of their capital can make sense to try to deploy those assets and make some money. That business I keep referring to because I know it's more impactful to kind of talk about an actual business. I looked up the account, uh, you know, and they've made about $440,000 in interest on their you know, $7 million or so investments over the last year and a half. Um, you know, now 
that's not linear because they've been adding to the account. So not all of the money has been in there, but I did just happen to look it up and, and see that they're up almost half a million dollars, not quite. And it, in the last couple of years, interest rates have moved for them and they've got almost a 7% return. We're targeting three to four. They were lucky, got an interest rate move in their direction. So they're actually up pretty nicely right now. That's an example of like, in our view, what might make sense during this environment. I'd love to, if we have time, kind of cover the four reasons you buy bonds, you know, when, when we get a moment, but I don't want to get off topic here. Yeah, now's time. Go. Okay. All right. Walk us well, you're our yeah, guest. Yeah. Take the well, floor. All right. Well, I was just, I was still answering the question about, you know, the different vehicles, but if, 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 if you all want to talk a little bit more about bonds, and I do think this is a time, and I also find... You know, it's a funny thing about bonds is that the bond market is two and a half times as big as the stock market, right? Like, I think that sometimes sets people back when they hear that, right? You know, yeah. how much do you hear about stocks versus hearing about bonds? And yeah. I think there's something, something in the special sauce of stocks that just make them interesting to talk about because they're so darn volatile, right? You know, the old adage, if I go to a restaurant, I don't like it, tell nine people. If I go to a restaurant I like, I might tell two people, right? We're just wired that way with humanity. And I think what happens is people, you know, they, they get caught up in the emotion, the excitement of the equity market. Um, and they get, you know, just, you know, they, they get filled with despair. Bonds are boring ultimately. So they're not as interesting to talk about, but they are a force of good, right? It's like a, like a, in my view, I kind of think of bonds like a very light tailwind when you're on a bike ride, right? It doesn't mean you don't have to pedal. It just means that, you know, you get, you got to pushed in the right direction. There's yeah. four primary reasons why you buy bonds. The first is the obvious income. We're buying fours and fives right now that are maturing in about five years. What that basically means is we're buying bonds that are paying about four to 5%. We're paying a little over par value, meaning their maturity value, but pretty close to par value in the corporate side. And we're getting four to 5%. That's the first reason, cash flow, right? Income, fixed income payments. The second reason is guarantees. An actual individual bond contract has a par value, a guaranteed value, right? We don't buy brand, brand new bonds. That would be you know, not that wise in our view because the maturities would be a bit long. We are buying bonds that have about five years, you know, maybe a little longer, maybe a little less of maturity left, right? The life of the bond, the bond matures, the par value is paid back to uh, the lender. In this case, it would be our clients. Those par values are guaranteed. And as long as that company is still in business and we buy investment grade companies, so the chances of a default are obviously present, but generally speaking, historically, that's been a very low chance. The third reason is growth, growth above the interest. And there's two ways to get growth above the interest. The first is buying and selling bonds opportunistically, meaning I have an apartment complex that's paying me rent, but if some guy wants to come pay me a lot more than I paid for the apartment complex, I'll let it go. That's what we're doing with bonds. We're actively managing them. The second way is if interest rates move down. Your bonds look a lot more attractive to the market if interest rates move lower. Now, I can tell you right now, interest rates are not going to move lower. So the growth aspect of bonds right now, of rate drops, pushing your bond prices upward, not available for new purchases in my view. I mean, we could get lucky and you know maybe negative yields come out for existing bond purchasers pushing up their value. But frankly, nobody wants that scenario because that scenario is probably going to mean a lot of other things are quite bad. So realistically, yep. you've got to put out of your mind rates going lower. 
which means you're not going to make money on the bonds going up because of that. But the human condition is emotionality. And when emotionality enters into investing, there's going to be some market events. The Trump election, right? That was a surprise for the bond market. Bond market had two very bad months. That's a time when an active manager can go in and look and find deals for clients. Uh, You know, more recently, uh, COVID with the market correction in March, there was a lot of bonds that came onto the market. There was a lot more sellers than buyers. That's a time period where you can arbitrage or if you have new money coming in, you can hopefully buy in at a really good price point because market is you know, not fully valued, so to speak, right? The bond market does trade like stocks in a few ways in the sense that it fluctuates up and down based on emotion. It's just that the fluctuations are much, much, much less because behind it, unlike a stock, you have a par value guaranteed back to you. So the volatility is much lower. The last is diversification, right? Diversification. What I mean is there is a negative correlation And, you know, sometimes that's a fancy investment term, negative correlation, don't get scared by it. Just think of bike pedals or pistons in an engine, like pistons in an engine. If you got a, you know, V6 or a six cylinder, they're not all up and down at the same time. The car would hop like a kangaroo, right? You got three up and three down. Same thing on a bike pedal. You got one up, you got one down. Negative correlation is all that is. One is up, one is down. That makes for a smooth ride. We can't and have not been able to achieve in the investment world perfect negative correlation. But the closer you can get to things acting differently than other things, Mm -hmm. the smoother ride you can get into a client's portfolio. So the fourth reason to buy bonds is they have a modest negative correlation to stocks. Investment-grade corporate bonds have a zero, pardon me, negative 0.2% correlation to stocks. Negative one would mean they're exactly opposite like a bike pedal. Positive one would mean it's two bike pedals at the same place. This bike pedal's a little bit off. It's not perfectly negatively correlated with bonds and stocks, but it is at least negatively correlated a little bit, which means when stocks zig, bonds sometimes zag. Sometimes bonds zig too, and those are the time periods that aren't so fun, but there's enough zigging and zagging that that correlation number actually goes into the negative territory, which is the good area. So let me summarize. People buy bonds for income. They buy bonds for guarantees. They bonds. They buy bonds for growth, which frankly isn't available in the interest rate drop standpoint, but it might be available in the active management sense. And that is yeah. our expertise. And then lastly, they buy them for diversification to kind of counterbalance a more aggressive equity position, stock position in their portfolio. Yeah. Now, if I could, I'll turn it back to you, but I, I want to make sure that we do hit on in the podcast, the risks, right? I'd be remiss if yeah. I didn't mention the risks associated with bonds. Yeah. Well, let me hit on that then. Um, so yeah, the ahead. risk associated with bonds, I, I use the word guarantee. And every time I use the word guarantee, I do feel compelled to make sure that I don't, you know, I don't, I don't miss the, the chance to tell you that even though a bond itself is guaranteed, when you sell it, you're going to, you know, if you sell it early before it matures, you're going to take whatever the market is willing to pay for that bond. That present market adjustment means you could fluctuate. Right now, because bonds are, you know, doing pretty well and rates came down, most of our bonds that we purchase for clients are trading above par value. So liquidity in the market is pretty good. Bonds are trading above par value, not generally a problem at the moment. There are time periods, they're rare, but there are time periods where bonds are trading below par. And in that case, you might you know, get a little bit less back than the guaranteed value. There's also default risk, 
right? Default risk would be, you know, if the company that you purchase or that we purchase for our clients isn't there, if it falls on hard times, it goes bankrupt. Now, a lot of times you get some money back during bankruptcy. The way we work around that is we buy clients 50 to 100 bonds. So they don't have more than maybe one to 2% in any one particular company. But default risk needs to be acknowledged. And then liquidity risk. Liquidity risk would be, you know, if you happen to call us up on a given day and want your money back, there is a very high chance historically that that is easily able to be accomplished. But I'm not going to tell you on March 16th that it was a great time for you to call us up and try to liquidate your bonds. Everybody was selling on March 16th. We could have sold your bonds probably, but you wouldn't have gotten a great price because the market was in a precipitous downfall right before the Fed stepped in and took some action to kind of get markets functioning more properly. Now, I'm going to tell you, out of 45 years, our head trader said March 16th was the worst day in bonds he's ever seen. We are actually positive 5 to 10% so far this, this, this day as I speak in bonds. So it was temporary, but I need to acknowledge that we are not talking about bonds and the word guarantee in the sense that we're talking about cash. There is risk. But the lawyers that govern yeah. our business refer to it as conservative. It is a conservative investment. Yeah. So when you're, you're buying equities, it, you're, you're owning a part of the company. When you're buying bonds, all you're doing is buying debt from the company. Yeah, right? you're really you, you're lending. Not, you become yeah. a lender. You're, you're a lender. You're lending another company or a municipality money. And they're so excited to borrow that money from you. They're going to pay you, in our case, usually 3 to 5% for that, yeah. that loan that you're giving them. Right, right. You don't any. You don't own the company. Are you doing just lending them some money? Where if you're buying equity, you're actually buying part of the company. So you 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 know if the company goes up, you go up with it. If the company goes down, you go down with it. So it's real, real simple. So let me let's pause for a second. And, and what I want to make clear is that we've gone we've gone into some really important features. Why's why nots? How do bonds work? Uh, market risk, all different types of risk. Most of the time, when you just sit down with someone and put together a mutual fund portfolio, right? You're not you're going into some of these things, but you're not going into them as as deeply. You're focused on mutual funds, right? You're you're, you're com- coming up with a portfolio that's full of mutual funds. That is not necessarily what we're talking about here. That's not necessarily a wrong thing for some people. But what we're talking about is a is a specific type of investment uh, portfolio where you own the equities and you own the bonds yourself directly. So, uh, Mark, walk us through that a little bit, and, and Michael and Matt uh, add in color as you want to. But Mark, walk us through the key difference and what most people in the world, especially if they have a four hundred one k, are used to buying mutual funds or buying exchange-traded funds, <laughs> funds being the key word, whereas what we're talking about here is a fund. Walk us through that, Mark. Sure. Yeah, I think the, the main thing to emphasize is that there's levels of appropriateness. So mutual funds are a great tool. They're used quite often in, in 401k plans or when mm-hmm. you're, you're starting mm-hmm. to invest. Um, when you do accumulate enough assets that, that you can be diversified, so you, you have enough money on your own that you can buy multiple stocks, multiple individual bonds, then you really, 
you basically open the opportunity or open the door for opportunity for uh, that customization that we're talking about. So that's a real key component that you know, if you're buying a mutual fund, then you you buy into something that's already has some you know pinup taxes that could be occurring. You, know, you think about this year when the market hit a at a high in, in say mid February. By March 23rd, you know, it had gone down about 35% in the S&P 500. So if you're holding those investments, people are selling them, you know, you could be basically reporting taxes, you know, at the end of the year on somebody else's activity. You're holding that mutual fund. They were selling it, you know, creating some short and long-term capital gains that you're going to have to pay taxes on when the account value is going down. Versus if you hold those individually, you understand your risk, you're in the appropriate investments, you're holding on to those, you're not generating taxes because of that activity because you're, you're holding the individual securities you know, and, and riding it through. So that's a big component or big piece of you know, some of the differences between you know, a mutual t- fund uh, versus you know, individual uh, holdings or portfolio where you you can have that customization and you really need to have about five hundred thousand uh, and above of assets to to get that level of diversification you know to uh, the customization approach yeah what are, what are the thoughts on that matt michael you know, I, I'll jump in because, listen, I, I grew up lower middle class as my Mazda RX-7 I mentioned earlier references. Uh, you know, I put I, I, I love mutual funds and I feel bad in a way now that I work for a manager that focuses on high net worth individuals, you know, kind of making fun of them. I'm not making fun of mutual funds. We like mutual funds. They are a force of good for the world. If you don't have a ton of money, they are a wonderful investment vehicle to get professional management, liquidity, and diversification. So understand, you know, we're not saying mutual funds are bad. They're actually quite good. But just like anything in life, the more money you have, the more options you have. And, you know, I'm more picky now than I used to be because I know more and I've experienced more out of life. And when I see some of the negatives of the mutual fund world, I just want to explain to people that you don't have to deal with those. The biggest negative with mutual funds in the bond world, like the low risk kind of cash, you know, conservative investment world, is that they have what we refer to as perpetual maturity. You, you, you can't look at someone in the eye and tell you that this bond fund has an expiration date with a par value recapture and a guaranteed interest rate. What you're doing is you're joining a big party with a bunch of other investors with a smart bond manager that's buying bonds for all of you. And that bond fund started probably a long time before you joined it. And that bond fund's going to last a long time after you leave. And you're just on that bus for a little while. And if that's a good experience when you're on the bus, great. But there's nothing that tells you up front or in the end what your experience is contractually going to be. That's yeah. different than when you buy a bond portfolio. It's your bonds. Your bonds have a beginning and an end date and a coupon or an interest payment. And, you know, our bond managers say, you know, well, that's the benefit of a bond portfolio. You, I can look at you, run numbers and tell you what your interest is. I can tell you what your power value recapture is. So perpetual maturity versus actual finite maturity and, and interest you know, payments are, are really a big fundamental difference. Mm-hmm. As Mark mentioned, though, you do need serious capital 
because if you don't have enough money to get diversified with individual bonds, you have no business exploring that as a viable option. Yeah, and I think that the key that you talked about there is if if you're going to, and what we've recommended from the outset of this podcast is creating a customized approach, right? What's a custom approach? What's, how do we manage our corporate assets, right? What's the right way for us to manage? Take a lot of, you know, uh, uh, conventional wisdom and, and, and looking at different things and what, what, you know, the team of advisors coming together, but what is our particular way of doing things, right? What's right for us with, with that wisdom built in? Then you look at it and say, well, how, what's our investment policy statement? How do we customize it to us again? So if you go after, if it's finally time to put the excess cash into an investment, then a mutual fund is not necessarily customized to you. And so you want to take that customization effort and bring it down to what you're owning and how you own it. And that's what this, this uh, uh, building your own portfolio, building your own, you know, really your own mutual fund. It's, it's your mutual fund. It's company ABC's mutual fund. And, and to me, that's the, don't stop short and just go buy off the shelf mutual funds. Make sure that you're, because you're, you have the opportunity to, if you have, you know, right, the right amount of cash, uh, the, the, kind of that, that threshold of cash, go ahead and, and take that final step and, and put that into place. What what are there, what are some other you know comparisons you know let's compare and contrast you know going out and buying you know a, a series of mutual funds and or compared to building your own what what are some some other uh, contrasts comparisons and contrasts there walk us through some of those anywhere from cost analysis to to right like you talked about tax behavior and all those different things what are some other points. You know, I'll jump in and say that the biggest difference is the one that we've mentioned. Another one is fees. And the other other one that comes to mind is active and passive. Mutual funds, generally speaking, apply a level of a fee that is equal across all investment sizes. So if you've got 100 million in XYZ bond fund, your ongoing operating expenses are going to be the same as if you have a million or 100,000 in that fund. Now, understand, I'm not talking about the upfront load, right? Of course, there's usually no upfront load in a mutual fund if you put tons of money in it. And there might be an upfront load if you don't put tons of money in it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you've got a serious amount of capital and you put money in a mutual fund, you're paying the same rack rate on the ongoing fees as anyone putting in far less money. So there's not, you know, generally a discount there in the sense that, you know, ours would work. Like our fee structure and a high net worth bond manager has a tiered fee structure. Most financial advisors have a fee tier structure. So a $100 million investment pays dramatically lower fees than somebody with 10 million or 1 million. Uh, Generally speaking, an individually crafted bond portfolio has a lower fee than a mutual fund because our average account holder is much higher. And when you have average account holders, you can afford to charge a lower fee. Uh, the, the last thing that I'd mention there is that active and passive should be a part of this discussion. You know, for someone listening to a podcast and trying to, you know, figure out, hey, should I talk to somebody or should I try to go it alone? You know, you got to know the categories. One category we've hit quite hard is, you know, funds versus individual holdings 
But another area, big two categories in the area of investing is active and passive. Now, anyone listening to this or you know, those in the investment industry, or even if you just have peripheral knowledge about investments, you've probably heard because there's been intense media focus for decades on the fact that excuse me, passive management is better than active management because it costs less. And frankly, the data is somewhat compelling in the equity space, the stock space. 70 to 80% in this market of active managers are not beating their benchmark after fees. That is a true statement. Doesn't mean you shouldn't consider an active equity manager. It just means that you should give it some thought, right? On the bond side, the numbers are reversed. It's not quite so stark, but more than half, actually, it's almost two-thirds of bond managers in the active management space are ahead of their bond benchmark. So, you know, one of my kind of, you know, passions that I bring to this conversation is that if we're going to believe the data and be cautious and trepidatious about hiring active equity managers because of the statistics on, you know, winning and losing versus, you know, fees and benchmarks, we should also follow that same data-based approach in the bond side because it does not support just buying a bond benchmark. They are relatively inexpensive. I think Vanguard total bond market might cost five basis points. Working with us would cost more than that, of course. But the net returns after fees, many, many, many bond managers, even in the, the people in the bottom 50th percentile, you know, the bottom half of management are still, in many cases, beating the bond benchmark. So you also want to be cognizant. You know, our bond team says something to the effect of when the Fed is active, your bond portfolio should be active. Quick example of active, you know, buying long bonds right now doesn't make a lot of sense. Buying bonds from European countries with negative sovereign debt, you know, why would you, why would you buy German bonds paying negative 1%? You're going to give money to Germany and then they're going to give you 99 cents on the dollar back. Like that, that's not a, if you're buying a benchmark on some level, benchmarks might be required to get that broad market exposure, which might include negative yields which might include too long of bonds that you might not be interested in in a low interest rate environment. So uh, you can tell I have a lot of passion and knowledge on this. You know, we, we certainly want to customize each thing to each individual client. But I can yeah. tell you that from a, from a fund and a fee standpoint, individual bonds do have some advantages. But you should also generally be aware that active and passive are very different. And that, frankly, active and the data does support strongly that active should be considered for individuals. We think the best place in the sweet spot, and I'm sorry to step on you, the best place in the sweet spot, and I know it's a position of convenience because it's what we do, but we think the data supports this, is for those that that have enough money, individual bonds of investment-grade quality and actively managing those bonds. We think that's the sweet spot in the bond market these days. And you made a really great point there, Michael. Um, You mentioned earlier, you know, stocks get kind of all the screen time and that's what everybody talks about. It's kind of the sexy investment um, everybody likes talking about. But really, bonds are uh, generally going to be a larger part of your portfolio. And the same strategies aren't uh, equal across those asset classes. So the Warren Buffett's very uh, famous for saying, uh, you know, the, he had his passive versus active bet with stocks. So a lot of people have kind of transferred that same sort of mentality or strategy over to fixed income. You know, Warren Buffett told me that passive is better than active. So uh, I see these bond funds are much cheaper if I go and, you know, just buy the Vanguard bond index. That's that's what I'm going to do. And it was uh, even us 
uh, as advisors, you know, we we're not immune to that kind of publicity and seeing the studies uh, of fixed income active managers more often than not outperforming uh, the benchmarks and and providing a lot more value than their uh, stock counterparts. That was a pretty big um, breakthrough or kind of a, a big revelation that uh, we we learned that it's it, you don't want the same strategy in both your bond and your your stock uh, portfolio necessarily. So maybe that's the you know the one takeaway for everybody here if you want something that um, the thing that's most likely to be kind of an aha moment is oh I didn't know that uh, having an active manager in the bond space was such a uh, more likely valuable item to me in my portfolio than uh, what I originally thought. So that was that was a really good point. I, di- I didn't want that to get away without uh, expanding on it a little bit more. There's probably a dozen nuggets from today's podcast that I would want everybody who's in this position of what do I do with excess cash to be able to kind of go through. And, and so what we'll do after this is kind of pull those out and, and we'll get them pushed to LinkedIn and make sure they're in article format and We'll put some notes in the video below. The audience is listening through this to be able to kind of pull some of those things out. We'll provide links below to Michael where they can find more information out about you and uh, Clark Capital. And always, if you like the podcast, check out our other podcasts as well. And kind of in summary, if you aren't forecasting well to be able to say, here's what our needs are in the next 12 to 18, 24 months. Here's what we want to be able to do. If you don't have a good sense of what that means for your cash and being able to differentiate between short-term and long-term cash, give us a call because we want to help you figure that out. And once you have a handle on that, then you'll be able to sit down and say, what's the best approach for us as a corporation to manage our cash? And so it's sitting down and, and, and listening to Michael's approach understanding what we can do for building a per, you know, specific and, and customized portfolio for us at our company with our needs and how much cash we have and what our goals are. So we like the customized approach. Michael, thank you for uh, helping us elaborate on that. Thank you for being with us today. And any questions, shoot them in the comments below or we'll have our contact information in there as well. We appreciate everything. Mark, Matt, thank you for joining in again. And uh, we look forward to the next podcast. Thanks, everybody. Always a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Three Wins Podcast. We have links to some awesome resources in the show notes. And if you haven't already done so, please click subscribe so you won't miss any future episodes of the Three Wins Podcast. This is Sean Lydon signing off for now. Until next time, we'll see you then. Before we close out this episode, completely a little disclaimer from Clark Capital. The views expressed are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the views of Clark Capital. The investment strategy or strategies discussed may not be suitable for all investors. Investors must make their own decisions based on their specific investment objectives and financial circumstances. Economic and market forecasts presented herein reflect a series of assumptions and judgments as of the date of this presentation and are subject to change without notice. Before investing, an investor should consider their investment goals and risk comfort levels 
and consult with their investment advisor and tax professional.